you either make quite a lot of money because you validate an extract value or as a CFID by arbitrage an extract value or even a searcher which has zero risk but can like extract value, etc. Or you're a sucker. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. We are joined today by Uri, the CEO of BlocksRoute. Uh, but before that, I really want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Hexens. They're one of the most hardcore security teams in Web3, pioneering in ZK and novel cryptography. They are trusted by some of the top tier brands in crypto, such as Polygon, working on the ZK AVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, Nubank, and more. Um, you'll hear more about them a little later in the show. But if you are coming to our event permissionless uh, in Austin, Texas, uh, September 10th through 13th, be sure to stop by their booth at booth 832 and say 0x Research sent you for a free Web2 pen test along with your quote. Uh, but anyways, Uri, we're really excited to have you on here. Thanks for joining us. Um, do you mind starting just uh, telling people what BlocksRoute is and uh, the main premise behind the project? Sure. Well, hi, Dan. Hi, Sam. Great to be here. I'm Uri, CEO and co-founder of BlocksRoute, TLDR, we're called BlocksRoute because we route blocks and transactions. So the core of what we do, we have infrastructure, servers all around the world, which send information really, really fast, almost at the speed of light. So we propagate transactions and blocks. I think our average propagation is globally is under 140 milliseconds. So we're not at the speed of light, but we're pretty damn close to the speed of light. And uh, I did my PhD here at Northwestern University in computer networks with my then advisor, now co-founder, Professor Kuzmanovich. And when we got started, the idea was, well, we kind of like went down the rabbit hole of crypto coming from um, the research side. And when we came up with the idea of blocks, it was like, well, if we can send information faster, can we somehow help blockchains? And there were some ideas around that. But we really found product market fit when the DeFi summer happened in the summer of 2020, when everybody and their sister kind of like, wait, these guys allow us to hear about blocks faster and send our transaction to the back then mining pool, nowadays validators, send it faster to them, basically allow people making better trades. So we're kind of like, um, Flash Boys for DeFi, if you know Flash Boys, the guy who connected Chicago and New York, right? If you're one millisecond faster than everybody else and, you know, price skyrockets in New York, then everybody rush. And if you're just one millisecond faster than everybody else to hit, let's say, Chicago, then you buy there and you profit and you're better. And so during the, the DeFi summer, we had all these people who started to use our platform and our network to see other blocks, to see other transactions, to front run. This was prior to Flashbot and before MEV became a thing, sending, like we didn't call it MEV, we were the first to offer, let's say, private transaction. Send a transaction directly to the validator. Don't get front run because nobody sees your transaction. So this was like, I think, mid-2020, mid like, uh, July or August or something like that. And so over the course of, let's say, five quarters from mid to basically over the course of 2021, we moved from, you know, being a team of 16 people with kind of like we build the infrastructure, but we didn't really find the product market fit. And to wait, a company that like makes $10 million ARR and kind of like everybody are using anybody from jump and winter mute and the largest traders 
to, you know, an MEV searcher in a basement in Taiwan, who nobody knows who is and everybody in between. So they started using our services to see information faster, to send information faster. Um, Flashbot came out. We started to also run a Flashbot relay. So for people who aren't very deep in the MEV landscape, we'll probably dive deeper into that. But um, MEV is the ability to see a transaction, front run it, back run it, capture arbitrage. So when Flashbot came out, we also ran um, a Flashbot relay, all the MEV searcher became our customers because they all want to see transaction and they want to want to send it fast, etc. Roll forward to the merge and MEV boost um, almost a year ago. In, in two weeks, it will be two, two years. Well, if, I don't know when this is aired, but literally a year ago, um, then we are now a major MEV block builder and even more importantly, an MEV relay. So we send transact, sorry, blocks from block builders to the validators. They choose the best one, we broadcast it. And so we are very deep into DeFi. We're very deep into the MEV landscape. A lot of the actors there are using us. I think we peaked in the bull market, like everybody. Um, I think we were routing one and a half billion dollar of trades per day for our users and customers. So that was like 40% of all DeFi volume was coming from our users to be sent, you know, on Ethereum, on BSC, on Polygon, on Solana. Awesome. Yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, intro into, into what BlockStrat is. I want to give a quick shout out to Hexens. As we explore today's blockchain landscape, let's take a moment to recognize them as a premier cybersecurity provider in Web3. Hexens is trusted by Tier 1 projects like Polygon, including a security review on their new Polygon ZKEVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, OneInch, NewBank, and more. Get a deep dive into your technology stack with the most comprehensive analysis and cybersecurity consulting. Hexens not only uses widely known methodologies and flows, but discovers and introduces new ones on a day-to-day -day basis. With over $55 billion secured, they cover everything from smart contracts to blockchain to Web2 pen tests. Yeah, there's been nearly $7 billion of total value hacked in crypto's nascent history, so it's safe to say your team has a lot on the line. Don't skimp out, take your security seriously, and reach out to Hexens. Don't forget to mention 0x Research for a free Web2 pen test with your partnership, and reach out to Hexens at hexens.io. Find them in the links in the show notes, or reach out to them at Permissionless. They'll be at booth 832. Uh, but without further ado, let's get back to today's episode. Do you mind taking a step back and just laying the foundation for the conversation and explaining, you know, what is the transaction life cycle uh, through MevBoost today? Sure. So I think it would be easier if somebody isn't really deep in the space, let's start like from the basic, you could imagine, and then kind of like roll all the way to MEV Boost. So you could imagine, you know, vanilla Ethereum, people send transaction out there. And if somebody is about to buy 10,000 ETH for USDC, that will push the price of ETH, let's say on Uniswap. Then if somebody could see that transaction and get their transaction ahead of this transaction, you know, it's going to know the price is going to go up. So they can front run this transaction, just get ahead of it and buy it low and then afterwards sell it high. So that is front running. Back running would be um, if somebody is about to make that trade and he only buys on Uniswap, price on Uniswap will be super high. But, you know, let's say on balancer, it would still be low. And the real price would be somewhere in between those. And, you know, actually centralized exchanges are the bigger factor here. 
And so the price on Uniswap would actually be wrong. It would be too high. So back running a transaction is mostly capturing the arbitrage just behind a transaction. And if you do both, it's called sandwiching. Okay, you front run the transaction, buy before it, then the transaction, the victim transaction happens. Then your background sells afterwards and you profit as the MEV searcher, you profit. So vanilla Ethereum, people were just trying to get ahead of other people, etc. The next version was, or one big negative externality of that was that gas prices went through the roof because anybody who tried to get into the next block, everybody are spamming the network with super high gas transaction, tried to get into the block. So even, you know, I just tried to send you a token or an NFT or something like that. It isn't super important to happen. It doesn't have tons of in like value to the transaction, but I am in the same game with like the hottest game of capturing MEV and DeFi. So it really pushed the gas price for everybody. The next step was kind of like, let's say, okay, let's create bundles. Instead of just throwing it all into the mempool, let's give it to the validator and tell them, oh, if you include this transaction, like let's say a sandwich transaction or a arbitrage transaction or et cetera. So if you include this bundle of, let's say a sandwich, a front running transaction, a victim transaction, a back running transaction, it would pay you, let's say a dollar. And somebody else does the same thing, but he's slightly better or he pays more. So it pays a dollar and a half and somebody else is paying two dollars. So the the, back then it was the mining pools. Now it's a validator kind of like choose whoever paid them the most. It kind of like silo this entire competition outside of normal usage. Roll forward even further to MEV Boost and POS and the merge. And the idea there was, listen, if each validator would do it internally, or let's say the Flashbot idea was that if each individual validator would do it by itself, then if you're a solo validator, you don't have the resources, you don't have the expertise, you're not going to be very good at it. So you'll make 4.5% APY. And let's say Coinbase or Lido or Attestant or any of the largest like validator or block uh, demon or figment, any of the largest one, they'll have an expert team in-house to extract them as well. They'll be making 7% APY. And if that's the case, then not only they will make more money, of course they'll make more money, they'll make more money because they're bigger, they'll make disproportionately more money. And this is a centralizing force. If you have to if you have 32 ETH, what do you do with it? Do you solo validator? Do you run a solo validator? Or do you give it to Lido to do it for you? One would give you 4.5%. The other would give you 7%. Of course, they're going to give. So, you, of course, they're going to give it to the largest actor who would be better at it. So, this is a centralizing force. And the idea, and this is, I disagree with Flashbot about a bunch of stuff, but I do agree with them that this is a bad thing. And therefore, um, the idea was instead of each validator building their own block by themselves, they open it to third parties, to block builders. Okay, so instead of it, the value of the block being dependent on just how good you are at extracting MEV and finding arbitrage and front running and sandwiching, all these kind of stuff, you just say, oh, anybody who wants to send me a block, do send them my way. And one would offer you a block and it pays you $100. The other pays 101, this one pays you 105. You just take the best one, you outsource it, and which makes it that even if you're a solo validator or you're Lido or whoever, everybody are making the same APY. 
And so that prevents this centralization force of validators. Obviously, the other side of it is that that just pushes the centralization into the block building area. Okay, so you have now like you have Beaver, you have RSync, and you have Titan, which are three builders who are now responsible for something like 70% of all blocks out there, which is wild and insane. Um, and you could say, is that good? Is that bad? But stopping here for a second, this is now the landscape of the transactions. Um, as to the transaction lifecycle, you could imagine, or one more piece worth adding is now we have private order flow. People used to send transactions to the mempool. They got exploited. Validator extracted the value from them. So people say, well, we don't really, I, <laughs> I don't like getting clubbed in the head every time I try to use DeFi. Also for me, like it makes DeFi terrible. DeFi will never be able to compete with DeFi that way. And that's like a big part of why I, the area where I disagree with Flashbots. And so a new form of actors started to, to form from this, um, which is private order flow and order flow auction and these kind of things. Basically, I send a transaction and instead of it just going to the validator, I said, we have a service, let's say, we have back run me. Okay, you send it to us, we promise we won't front run you. Okay, which front running is bad. I would get the worst price. As a user, I will get the worst price. But we will look whether you're doing a really good job with your transaction. And if you're not, let's say you only buy on Uniswap and you know you should be capturing it on multiple venues and you're leaving money on the table, we will try to pick that up. And the user will get some of it and the validator will get some of it and we will get some of it and the searcher will get some of it. So these, if, if we're talking about the life cycle of transaction, instead of transaction going to the general mempool, now they're going whether these are services like background me, whether directly to the builder, whether directly to a searcher, like all, sort, all sorts of auction mechanisms that are being built around it. I don't necessarily, like we're offering it and it's better than the alternative, like, like getting clubbed in the head and losing all the money. But MEV auction is basically like, oh, you give me the transaction, I'll club you in the head and I'll give you $10. And this guy offers to club you in the head and give you $50. So you still get clubbed in the head. Like, you're just getting being paid for it. It's like by definition worse than not getting clubbed in the head. Um, taking it money-wise, like some of that value is being extracted. You need to front run it or back run it or capture arbitration. Like there's definitely friction there. The searchers also want to make money out of it. Other people, so by definition, it's worse than like if the transaction executed without all these stuff around. But it is better than, oh, just throw it to the mempool and get front run. And so stopping here for a second, if you're thinking about the lifecycle of transaction, you know, you're sending a transaction to somebody, you know, send an NFT to somebody or make it, like it doesn't really matter. There's no value to extract there. It could totally go to the, to the mempool. DeFi transaction, which in my opinion are the most important, the most valuable, and the thing I'm really bullish and excited about in crypto carry with them a lot of value. So if you throw it into the mempool, you're going to lose for sure. Um, you could imagine, maybe it's worth even stopping here for a second. There is a price on Uniswap. ETH is worth $2,000, let's say. Now, blocks come on Ethereum every 12 seconds. So six seconds later, 
price on centralized exchange is already changed, right? It's not 2000, maybe it's 2001, maybe it's uh, 1900 or 1999. I, it changes all the time. But the, when you're about to make a trade and you send a transaction to trade on Uniswap, then you don't know what the price is going to be when the transaction execute in another, let's say five seconds or 10 seconds. So you kind of have to guess if you're about to buy, let's say, if for USDC and the price would shoot up, then your transaction would fail. Okay, you want to buy 2000, but you believe 2001. And what do you know? You don't get to buy at 2001. You'll, so you have to kind of like, if you don't want your transaction to fail, you have to allow, well, a bit of slippage. I'm will, I want 2000, but I'm willing to accept up to 2002. Let's say just throwing a number. However, if the price would actually go the other way around to it drops. It's like it's at 1900 or something. You're still going to pay the highest amount you were willing to pay, right? Because you said, I'm willing to pay up to 2002. And if the price went all, went down by $100 or something, like real, like 5% crash, people, a searcher would see your transaction. And say, oh, this guy is willing to pay that much money. I will sell him. Like, I will buy ETH. I will front Like, I will buy ETH. And that allow him to pay at 2000 and then sell it after him, etc. So, right. so when you're thinking about the life cycle of transactions, we moved from vanilla Ethereum. You know, you send transactions to the mempool, validators see them, they put them in a block, largely based on when they saw them and the fee that you pay, highest fee on the top, into being like you send a transaction, it will get front run. So you send it through like a back um, either an auction or background me or something like that to avoid that and just get it to the builders not even to the validators builders will try to make the best the best luck and offer it to the validators um now you have a bit of a trust problem between the proposer the validator who are about to create the next block and the builder they could each screw the other party um if the validator if the builder just give it to the validator they're like oh here's the best block the value and, you know, maybe it pays the validator $100 and keeps to the builder, let's say $10, um, then the validator say, screw that. Take the, take the block, see what the block looks like. Just unbundle all the transactions. Extract is the most value yourself. Don't pay anything to the builder and just keep all the value to yourself. So, like, if the builder just give the proposer the block, the proposer could screw him over. If it's the other way around, the bill say, oh, I would pay you one ETH, just sign this thing blindly for me. Then if the proposer does that, the validator signs this blindly, and maybe the validator, sorry, the builder doesn't actually pay. It says, I'll pay you a million dollars. In fact, he didn't pay him anything. Builder took all the money to himself and disappeared into the sunset. And so you have this trust problem between these two entities, which is why we also, or Flash, but introduced a new concept of relays we run a relay for example basically we're a somewhat of a trusted entity that sits in between and we get the blocks from the block builder and we see that it's fine and we tell oh here's the best quote that you could get sign it blindly and instead of trusting the builder trust us there are seven relays out there blocks route ultrasound flashbot agnostic block native aestas and um, eden and that's it. It's not a really good design, in my opinion. But 
we're kind of like sit in between to facilitate all of that. So validators make more money and builders are doing it and not afraid of being screwed over. That was beautiful. Completely set the scene for what the current state of the, the transaction lifecycle is, what, how, what MevBoost is, how it operates, and most importantly, who are the major players in there? And so you kind of mentioned all of them, right? Searchers, builders, uh, relays, and validators. And I have a quick question on a couple of those, to be honest. But uh, to begin... So builder searcher integration, there's been a huge rise in, in this. And ultimately, you know, you've mentioned a couple of those builders that are, are dominating the block building market. Um, my presumption is a lot of them are, are integrated builder searchers. I, I definitely don't know that for sure. We actually have good data, both like intimately. We know these actors. You actually know them too. You just know, don't know that you know them. Like all the big builders are actually large CFI, DeFi arbitragers. You know, like, if the, oh, this is, this is them. And this is them. like, you know, these names. And so it's like, no, to the people like, who are like deep in MVP, like, like, it's not a big secret, but it's somewhat secretive. Um, so there are two things worth saying here. Three, one, builders, generally speaking, are CFI, DeFi arbitragers. Okay. So if you have a lot of, let's start from a different angle, CFI, DeFi arbitrage, is the biggest piece of MEV. People say, well, MEV and cross-chain or whatever. Nothing is even close to matter as much as CFI, DeFi arbitrage. That's the thing, you know, CFI moves in real time, DeFi is somewhat of a sidecar running behind it. And so the prices on DeFi are stale, right? We just said like Uniswap, there was a block, here are the prices, but 12 seconds later, prices are completely different. And whoever gets to ARB these, I would love to trade against like stale prices 12 second sale prices all day long. You always make money. You never lose money that way. Um, out of all of MEV, something like 60% is being paid by C two validators, by CFI, DeFi arbitragers. But unlike atomic arbitrage, where there's not a lot of risk, and you know, if there is an imbalance between Uniswap and balancers, there's a lot of competition. Everybody, like, everybody tried to make it the most efficient way and pay the most to the validator to get included. So validators of that extract 91 to 99% of the atomic arbitrage and stuff that just happened on chain. But CFI DeFi is a completely different beast. First, it has risk, okay? You're trying to capture that arbitrage. It doesn't like either work or doesn't work. You could, be, you could find yourself capturing it on one hand and missing the other leg of it. So it has risk. You also need pardon my language, shitload of capital on CFI and on DeFi, right? Let's say, oh, I want to buy a million dollar of ETH here and still a million dollar of ETH there. So I need to have inventory. I need a million dollar worth of ETH on Binance or on Coinbase or probably both and elsewhere and on DeFi. So you need not only to have a lot of money, you need to also have positions and managers. So this is really done by like large, CFI, DeFi act, actors. So it, this is not something that you could do from your basement somewhere without a lot of capital. This is like super serious, big money. So it has risk. Obviously, they don't do it. If they're like, oh, there's no edge. They just do it for efficiency, but they don't make money. If they don't make money out of it, they don't do it. And so they don't pass 91 to 99% of the value to the validators. On average, I think the mean or the median, one of them is like 55% of the value go to the validators. The range is between like, if I remember the numbers from Frontier correctly, 
between 37 and 77 percent. So it's not, oh, let's extract all the value and we'll try to bid it to the validator and try to get it included. It's a lot more about the different positions of the different act CFI, DeFi arbitragers. If I happen to have a lot of ETH on chain and a lot of USDC on Coinbase at a given moment, and I want to make this trade and a different CFI, DeFi arbitrager sees the same opportunity, but he doesn't have the same amount of money in the same position, or maybe he has the money, but you know they have like super complicated like risk management engines internally. They can't make that trade because that exposes them to ETH going down. It's funny, like it's bad even if ETH goes up. Okay, it's kind of like if if you're exposed to something, it's bad even if you bought something and it goes up. It's the life of like a strat arc. And so the winner would be the one that happened to be the most positioned. It's not super competitive as you might think. So only 55% or so of the value being paid to the validators. Now, take, going back to the builders, so block builders get all the bundles from searchers who capture RBC, um, atomic arbitrage, et cetera. But it is the builders, the CFI, DeFi arbitragers who wait until the last possible moment. If we say that the validator would ask for the block, right? Let propose the best block at time zero. They'll wait until the last 100, 200 millisecond or so, try to make the best bid because only then do the, let's say differently, they try to minimize the risk. If they said like, oh, here's the block, I will make it this way, five seconds in advance, they can't really make a competitive, a competitive bid because maybe price would change. So they lie, wait until the last possible moment in order to make the thing that makes most, most sense for them. So it's like they kind of know the price on CFI, they kind of know the price on DeFi and try to make the best bet. And so builders, block builders, are the CFI, DeFi arbitragers, like, like, like point blank. And so this is a somewhat centralized, not, it is a very centralized um, 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 landscape there. There's a question, does it matter or doesn't it matter? Um, I remember speaking with Vitalik on this when he did like an MEV salon in Vienna. His take was, okay, we're going to have economies of scale. We're going, it's going to happen anyway. Let's break the connection between validators and this, right? What I said earlier, we don't want this. So larger validators make higher APY. We kind of like there's still economies of scale and the larger actors will be better at it. It's just that it happens only at the block building space and whether that's okay or not okay is for anybody to decide. Did that end the question or did I just move to a completely different trajectory of rambling? No, 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 no. It, you, I thought you nailed it. And one of the things you mentioned is actually the, you know, you can see in real time, like when those bids come in and it's very close, if not directly after that 12 second mark, uh, where you see the largest and winning bid come through. And there's a great website I want to shout out called payload.de. It does a phenomenal job. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. We'll put this in the link in the descriptions. If you ever need to procrastinate time, if you happen, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you're already deep in the weeds. So you're probably like us and <laughs> you're one of us. So check this website out. 10 out of 10 recommend. You already opened friend tech. You already responded to anybody who responded to you, et cetera. You have like three minutes. There are stuff you need to do, but you don't want to do it. So it's kind of, okay, let me burn a bit more time doing something else. 
go to payload.de and yes it's like their animation of like building the block and how it progresses over time is super cool it's super super cool so i want to talk so we talked about the integration between searcher builders and how that's beneficial to that operation uh, but if you look a two steps further down the supply chain you also see the integration with builder relays so a couple questions about relays but first and foremost like to me, it feels like relays are effectively subsidizing the MevBoost system because there's no economic value or incentive to doing so and to, to running one of these. And you, as you mentioned, there's seven or so relays. I think uh, I wrote this down. So six relays that have 10% more of the block share uh, that actually blocks get, getting routed through them. And you guys run two of them. So there's really only five entities uh, that have at least a 10% share. Of, of the blocks getting relayed. And so you could, you could put those people at a dinner table. So ultimately... Good what do you mean you could? We have... <laughs> if you're at... Like, you go to Paris. You literally meet everybody. Um, so first of all, I want to quote uh, Matt Cutler, the CEO of Block Native. Block Native are our competitors, but I also I like them a lot. And we try to collaborate as much as we can. And he's like, in the MEV landscape, you're either, I don't remember, you're either the victim or you're making your money or you're a sucker. Or no, no, he, had, he, had, he nailed it better. But basically, you either make quite a lot of money because you're validated and extract value or as a C by D by arbitrage and extract value or even a searcher which has zero risk but can like extract value, et cetera. Or you're a sucker. You're the user value, you're the Uniswap LP, money is extracted from you. Or you're the relay. Which, as he said, it's great. We're a, a, a small group of like a few entities and we're subsidizing the largest validators in Ethereum who, are, who have $25 billion of ETH stake and they make like, a, let's say, 5% out of that. So that's what like one in aggregate that will make like $1.2 billion per, per year. And okay, we got them. We and Block Native and Ultrasound, et cetera. So there is no incentive for to run a relay. We don't make any money out of it. A lot of people are like confused. Then why do you do it? And for us, like, okay, if there was the merge, it was either Flashbot just running a relay and their OPAC transactions, like, like censoring, that's not a really good thing. And so we said, let's chip in. Let's try to help this. We were subsidizing ourselves, but we're now trying to actually find a good funding or a good um, um, sustainable model for this. I'm actually in the opinion that we could be charged for this service and anybody who wants to use it, just pay and choose which, we, which relays you want to use. But that's a side note. But to your point about inter vertical integration, there is no incentive to run a relay. If you're a builder relay, like we run a builder, but our relay is like, our builder makes, I think it's like 2% of the block space. We could have made it a lot better if we wanted but we don't want to we, are, we don't want to compete with our customers like everybody like all the other builders they're using our services etc we mostly run it to provide additional services for some of our customers and also to be you know hands-on and know exactly what we're doing so we we understand what our customers are doing but so we're running it like flashbot are also doing it block native are also doing it there's no like we're not CFI, DeFi arbitragers. We don't make stupidly large amounts of money, especially when the market is volatile and keep half to ourselves. It's a thing that we also run. You could imagine that if any of us who were running a builder were not neutral enough. Okay, so it's kind of like, okay, I run it, but I don't give my own builder any advantage. 
if my builder, if there is a vertical integration between the builder and the relay, then the relay isn't really this neutral entity that sits between the builder and the validator, right? It is just the builder giving to the validator. So as I said earlier, there is a trust problem. Each one of them could majorly screw the other side. Um, and people say, well, the builder can just trust the validator, right? And the answer is no, a validator, no, I solo validate. I wait until it's my turn. I get to block and I take all the bundles, all the sandwiches where somebody front run and then back run, et cetera. I can bundle it. I just take the front running from each of them and then crush whoever did it. So the, it's as if you're trying to capture an arbitrage, but you only do one leg and you don't do, don't do the other one. Um, it is very similar in dynamics to what, I don't know if you know Sandwich the Reaper, later renamed to, to um, um, Low Carb the Crusader, but, but like he asked his name to be changed in, in exchange for him revealing another security vulnerability in the MEV boost-like setup. Long story short, he found a way that the validator could screw up, basically sign something and then like misbehave or something. You could, he extracted $20 million, disappeared into the sunset. Okay, so like any solo validator who just gets the block from the block builder could do something like that. A relay really protects both the builder and the validator from one another. So if there was integration between a relay and a builder, that protection is gone. It's kind of like, well, you're really just trusting the builder. So that is less of a real vertical integration pressure, I would argue people just won't use it. Like like any of the major value, um, value say like, yeah, we don't trust that relay. We'll use all the other relays, but not that one because it is strongly integrated with the builder. So again, we do run a builder, but it's not really, a we almost do it as a service for others, etc. We had the opportunity to make it a bigger, better builder. We're not in that business. That is true for us in Block Native and Flashbot. Some um, agnostic and ultrasound and ISOs don't even run a builder. So they're like, they're, they're safe from that direction. It sounds like you kind of think ultimately right now in today's Ethereum, DeFi users are ultimately suckers. So I guess like, what do you think the ideal end state of this looks like? And like, what's the best way to internalize this MEV that doesn't just incentivize sucking value out of users' transactions? I probably have this. I was about to say I have the strongest unpopular opinions, but I think Vlad Zamfir beats me with his idea of time traveling trades, which I only half understood when he explained it to me. Speaking with Vlad Zamfir is always a bit like that. Um, <laughs> I have a very different take on how the MEV ecosystem is affecting DeFi right now, how bad it is, and what we should be doing. So I think the key insight that I have that most other people don't share yet is that MEV is a negative sum game. Okay, not even a zero sum game, a negative sum game. The more value validators extract from DeFi, whether that's LPEs or users, front running, whatever, if they extract more value, then DeFi is less useful, right? By definition, that value is not created from, they're not creating value by offering services or whatever. No, no, they're extracting value. It's literally MEV, um, 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 minor extractable value. And so they extract value. They make DeFi worse. If DeFi is worse and not as useful, then we're going to have less liquidity and less activity in DeFi. Because if I have $1,000 and I want to buy ETH, 
Where do I go buy it? On Uniswap or on Coinbase? In Coinbase, I will get the current correct price. I don't even know what's the current correct price, right? I am not a high-frequency trader with seven monitors in front of me trying to like, okay, here's the liquidity on each one of them. The price right now should be this and put the limiter. Yeah, just like try to buy it at the current correct price. But because we have these high-frequency traders on C5 who constantly are any opportunity there, then any venue you go, wherever you buy, you're going to get the current correct price. If you go to DeFi, you will get the worst possible price, right? You'll try to buy it at some price. And if price goes up, it would fail. And if it goes down, you'll still pay the higher price. Like you're not going to get the best price by definition. And so DeFi won't be able to compete with CeFi, despite all the good stuff that DeFi has. So I'm a giant DeFi bull. Okay, DeFi has transparency. It's like this single, always on, open in the context of how like the internet is open. Anybody could participate single like global financial system that we're building here. Its value is immense. I could spend some time like jamming on that if you guys want. But like its value is immense, but it's not going to compete with CeFi and it's going to stay this like sidecar that runs behind it if it's going to be less useful. And so go, going back to why it's a negative sum game, validators extract the most MEVs that they can. So the DeFi sucks. So there's less liquidity and there's less activity. So there's less MEV. And so DeFi stays like a niche if you have to, you want to trade Pepe, you can trade it anywhere else. Okay, you, you use DeFi. But anything that you could, you use CeFi. And my favorite example for that is actually Bitcoin trading. So BTC, the highest, largest market cap in the world. Not only that, its CeFi volume is twice as big as ETH. I'm a huge ETH head. And this is kind of so like, I am very supportive of ETH. But fact is, BTC trading volume is much higher, whether you like BTC or don't like BTC. And the question is, do people take their BTC to wrapped BTC or something like that and try to trade it on DeFi? And it's not about the, oh, well, you know, Bitcoin, they don't trade the whole, no, no, they're trading, they're trading it on CeFi. The question is, do they also bring the liquidity and activity to DeFi? And we're seeing that 99.5% of all BTC trading volume happens on CeFi. And just like half a percent or so happens on DeFi. And the reason is, that DeFi isn't that useful. If you're trading, you're better off trading it on centralized exchanges than decentralized exchanges and DeFi right now. And this isn't inherent, but that's the current situation. So DeFi isn't winning right now from where I'm standing. If we were with, like it could be 10 times bigger or a hundred times bigger or a thousand times bigger, okay? I want DeFi to compete with DeFi and it's not happening right now to a large extent, because DeFi isn't useful enough. And so my own, my chip on the shoulder is that DeFi needs to be useful. We want in the center, right? We want everything, right? But if it's not useful, we got nothing, okay? Building the most decentralized system, which isn't useful and nobody wants to use because they're better off using DeFi unless they actually, actually really have to use DeFi isn't a good outcome. And so, with this insight in mind of like MEV being a negative sum game, I actually hold the following opinion, which is somewhat contrary, contrarian. Everybody in the current MEV landscape are aiming at MEV auctions. Okay, right, the value, it's the validator turn. He would make, try to extract the most value as it can from the block. We have third party block builders 
trying to feed them that, et cetera. And the result of that is that validators extract the most, the most value that they can. They're making their slice as big as they can, but it's the biggest slice from the smallest pie in the world. Okay, like, like I, this isn't a very useful DeFi ecosystem. And so two points, first is to say, the fact that we have that, well, we have MBV boost. So the money doesn't go to jump or winter mute or any of the, it goes to the validators means squat to the DeFi users and LPs, right? It's kind of like that. Oh, I bleed money, but it doesn't go to winter mute. It goes to the value. I feel so much better, right? Like, like this really solved the problem for me. And we're going to have MEV burn, right? So it doesn't even go to them. It burns and value accrues in theory, at least to all Ethereum holders. Again, as a DeFi user, this doesn't help me one bit. I bleed money and now I bleed it to all Ethereum holders. That, that doesn't solve anything. And so that's one point. And the second was um, that instead of validators trying to maximize this, their slice of the pie, but in the process making the pie that much smaller, they should be doing the other thing. They should be thinking of themselves as service providers. And instead of... An MEV auction ensures that they get the local maximum, right? Like they get like one, somebody bids one ETH, somebody 1.1, somebody 1.2. So they, they are in a maximum point. It does extract the most value, but it's a local maximum. And they'll actually make a lot more money if they don't extract 90% of the value or 60%. If they extract 40%, but of a much larger pie, they're better off, especially if that pie is 10 times bigger or 100 times bigger. And that larger pie, in my opinion, is if we can make DeFi compete with CeFi. Specifically, and more important than anything else, you could imagine that if validators give what I call instant inclusion. So think of it like as a pre-confirmation. It's, I'm a validator, it's my turn, and now I'm like, okay, this is one, this is two, this is three, this is four, this is five order it in real time and get paid for it, okay? Capture half a basis point or a basis point of all volume, then that isn't theoretically optimal. It won't maximize this size. Oh, why capture just one basis point? You could capture 1.5. Like, like it would capture a smaller slice, but it would make DeFi useful. You could imagine, again, I take the BTC example. You could imagine if we just get BTC volume to actually move into DeFi because it makes sense to LP BTC. You don't just bleed money, you actually make a higher APY. It makes sense to trade there and not everywhere else. Then the volume on DeFi would roughly double, maybe more because again, BTC volume is twice as much as ETH trading on, on, on CeFi. And what if DeFi isn't 5% of all trading volume? What if it's 50%? And what if not teach you? What if it's not half of the trading world? What if, if it dwarfs C5? What if it goes to being like 500% and which is the future I'm aiming for? Not even talking, okay, future New York exchange runs on Ethereum base, whatnot, et cetera. Okay, not even there, but like we're talking about very realistically being capable of allowing this to happen. Now, a million technical challenges to solve there. How do you prevent front running? How do you propagate transactions so nobody could front run one another? And there are ways to, to resolve that. What is fair and received order by all the validators? But again, tons of stuff. I'm not saying, well, I have a solution from start to finish, but I have ideas about how to solve anything. It would probably evolve over time. 
The major question, in my opinion, is does it pay validators more money? If it pays validators more money to offer services instead of extracting value from their users, if they make more money that way, they'll do it. Okay, like they would love... Validators are great actors. They don't like extracting value, but if they don't, somebody else would, and then everybody would move to stake with them, at least in theory. So they're kind of like forced to do it. But if we offer them a path to make more money in a different way, they would love that. And so my own personal crusade is to prove that it pays more money that way. If we can prove that providing instant, real-time, pre-confirmation, fair ordering thing, if they validators could offer that, and it pays better, we can spend the next five years, okay, how do we build it in the most decentralized way without builders and relays and MV surgers or whatnot, et cetera. A lot closer to vanilla Ethereum. Okay, that's super interesting. So basically the idea of the, the theory around instant inclusion um, would kind of be, you mentioned, mentioned this earlier, but you described DeFi as like this sidecar that every 12 seconds a new block gets uh, can, uh, created and then it catches up to CFI. So whatever the you know right now whatever the price on Binance is, that's that's the new price on on all these dexes uh, due to that sexadex arb driven by the builders. And now it's caught up, but oh, what, one seconds passed, two seconds passed. All right, now we're now we're lagging again. So with instant inclusion, the validators would be providing some sort of service where they could say, okay, I'm going to give you this price right now, even though the block isn't complete. But once the block comes, then you'll get it. Is that kind of the core idea here? Yes, let's let, think of a Uniswap LP for a second, okay? A Uniswap LP puts his money there and then every 12 seconds make a really terrible trade, right? It's kind of like ETH is at 2000 USDC, 12 seconds pass and then price moved to let's say 19 uh, or 1950, okay? And then the CFI DeFi arbitrager makes the single trade capture all Delta and again, passes a lot of that value or half of that value to the value, doesn't really matter. But the LP made one terrible trade every 12 seconds. And then, you know, there's the non-toxic order flow of like, okay, people actually trading against it, but that matters less. Um, if DeFi moved in real time, then the volume during these 12 seconds is something like 10 times higher than between start to finish, right? Price goes up, price goes down, price goes up, price goes down, price goes up. But like, for 12 seconds, which is an eternity in trading um, 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 terms, and you could think LPs will be trading on the way up, trading on the way down. So they'll be making a lot more trade, smaller trade. Half of them would be good, half of them would be bad on average, right? They'll trade in both ways. Instead of one single bad trade, we'll make a lot more trade, capturing more fees in the process, even if their fees are, let's say like, um, um, three basis points or instead of five. Okay, so you can actually make it cheaper for the user to participate with it, but they'll capture a lot more of the value if we find a way to make DeFi operate in real time. So from the Uniswap LP perspective, as an example, trading in real time means instead of one bad trade where he's always being taken advantage, he's really letting arbitrage, arbitrage the way up, arbitrage the way down, etc. And in retrospect, half of the trades they'll be making were actually good trades, and half would be bad, and they'll be making more on the fees. So that's in that I think is the spirit of, or so that's half of it. If you're just you know you have a thousand dollars and you want to buy ETH, you want to buy, and you don't know what the price is, but you know that if you send it, it's instantly included. If the price was off, some arbitrager would already come and correct it and capture the arbitrage. So arbitrages actually work 
for you. They provide a really valuable service. So when you send a trade, you get the car in correct price. You don't care if it's on Uniswap or Balancer or somewhere else. You don't care what's happening on Coinbase or Binance. Like, you would always get the correct price because they would move in picoseconds to try to correct it. And they won't front run you, which is like the third piece. People can like hate high frequency traders and arbitragers. It's kind of like, you know, we don't want to make TradFi again. We don't like the latency war there. The bad thing about TradFi is front running. What's bad about the, you know, the top high frequency trading firms kind of like operating and they're faster than you? The fact that you're trying to make a trade, they see what you're about to do and say, oh, he's going to buy ETH. I will buy ETH before him. So the price, so this is the bad thing. Now we moved like, okay, we take this into MEV and we say, oh, no, no, latency is bad. We don't want to, you know, tradify latency games. Oh, but front running is fine. Like, let's normalize that. No, no, that's the single most terrible thing. That's the thing why we don't like high-frequency traders. That's the bad thing about TradFi. We, put, we say that's okay, but the latency where, you know, arbitragers are actually a good thing, a valuable thing. They provide a valuable service in correcting the price. So you don't care how much liquidity there is here or there, any venue you go around the world. If you, let's, let's think, see, for if you trade on Coinbase or Binance or I don't know, wherever you are, OKX, you'll always roughly get the same price because if there is a mismatch, somebody would correct it. Same for DeFi. If the prices are correct, if prices are corrected in real time, that when you send a trade, nobody sees it. It gets first come, first served. Nobody front run you, so you don't get. If I'm making a trade and Jump is making a trade and they're faster than me, then their trade got in front of me. That's totally fair. That's okay. I'm not trying to beat Jump and identify a picosecond opportunity. But if I send a trade and they see my trade and then make their trade and make their trade based on the fact that I'm about to make a trade, that's not okay at all. That means I got a worse price because they saw it. That's the thing we want to solve for. And maybe the third, and for me, the most exciting thing is that in, if DeFi moves in real time, then it's not CFI is the real thing and DeFi every 12 seconds kind of catches up with it. Instead, you're going to have DeFi affecting CeFi and vice versa, the way Coinbase affects Binance and they affect, okay, like it's going to be a bi-directional effect, okay? Somebody buys on Uniswap, that changes the price on Coinbase and they're going to affect one another in real time as equal, not DeFi being like a sidecar running behind CeFi and never actually being able to compete and offer an alternative. There's just one question in my head that I can't get over and maybe there's a simple answer to it, but what's the point of solving this at the base layer if the ultimate roadmap of Ethereum is moving this activity to L2s? That, that is a fantastic question. And I, I've been thinking about it a lot. Lately, there's this notion that centralized sequencer are kind of okay. You know, if we were to talk a year, a year and a half ago, like everybody, no, no, like we have an L2 and it needs to be this decentralization. This is what it's all about. And I'm kind of like, well, it's hard. So let's start with this centralized chain, uh, sorry, centralized sequencer. And they're like, well, it's kind, of, it's kind of working. How about we just keep it at that? And, you know, we have the ETH one, the L1 security, whatnot. So they can't cheat. They can't steal your funds. If this, if DeFi is to become a thing and it's major or whatnot, and everybody are using it, 
And then Ukraine situation flares up and there's giant tension between the US and Russia. And the US said, you know what? Any wallet, here's a list of any individual Russian person we could identify. Touching any of them is illegal. It's overking compliant. You can't do it. Coinbase, where is your sequencer? If you touch any of it, like you're out. So like, like you should not do that. Same goes for like Arbitrum. Like it's not specifically for base or anything. Like this is true for any single sequencer, centralized sequencer. So yeah, they can't steal your funds, but we just threw them out. Like, okay, let's exclude all these people from participating in this L2 because like there's a single entity that can enforce all sorts of stuff. Or saying like, oh, this Pepe coin, that's a security. You like, don't touch it. Like don't include any transactions that does. If you do, you go to jail. So I love L2s. I think they should be decentralized. I think we can achieve a lot with decentralized L2s, but the current landscape is that they're not. And so a lot of people want to, tr I don't blame people who said like, no, Ethereum is decentralized and I trust it. And I have like a lot more trust in it. This is why most liquidity and most activity still happens on L1 and not L2. And when L2s are mature, then this should happen there maybe. So like, maybe it should happen on L1. Maybe it should happen to L2. Who am I to say? But I would also argue, you know, that's the user choice. If I am a user and I trust Ethereum decentralized network, and I do not trust, definitely not a centralized sequencer. You say, well, Arbitrum, if they decentralized, what would that look like? Well, I don't know. I need to see the details. But then, like, it could happen there rather than anywhere else. But if you take an L2 and decentralize it, you have exactly the same. You just replicated L1. So everything that I just said, True. Okay, let's not do it on L1. Let's do it on an L2. It's the same thing. So the L2 should do first come, first service. Few questions to be asked is, I don't know, if I'm a validator and this pays giant loads of money, do I want to push it away to an L2? If this is the most valuable use case off a blockchain, should everybody else move to an L2? Because this is the real thing. And blockchains inherently always only do the most valuable thing and push less valuable use cases out to L2s or not to happen at all. Should, th should this happen on an L2? There's a great reason for this to happen on an L2. Should this happen on an L1? Also, like, like, who am I to say if this should happen here or not? Who am I to tell the user, oh, I know you want to try to, to trust Ethereum. You don't trust base or OP or, or Arbitrum or any of the others, but no, no, take your trading and put it there. And I don't know, to your question, like it could happen on an L2. If, we do, if all the trading happens on an L2, we need to have exactly the same solution for exactly the same problem there. So it changes little from, from my perspective. It's about solving what do we do when we have a decentralized network of validators who produce blocks together. It's almost like if you build the working solution on L1, maybe you can map that to L2 in some way. And I have a similar question because we had a conversation with Eugene Chen from Ellipsis Labs building an order book. I love Eugene. Eugene what an, awesome. what, he's the man. I mean, incredible. He's incredible a chat. Guy. I like him a lot. <laughs> totally agree. But he actually, so your first point in one or two questions ago was, okay, well, if we can do instant inclusion, then we get more trades. So LPs earn fees on the way up, fees on the way down, and you effectively um, you're, you're trading both directions instead of that one bad trade. And that makes a ton of sense because then you're earning fees while uh, before that one bad trade occurs in, in the 12 second block time. So his pitch on why it was Solana over Ethereum was, okay, well, with 400 millisecond block times versus 12 second 
block times. You get that inherently with uh, with Solana. Uh, and so you don't have to kind of create this solution to go around it. So what do you think about like lower block times and how they impact this? Lower block times reduce MEV, for sure, from the get-go. You could imagine that like, if you're thinking about like LP perspective or whatnot, you trade up your trade. Instead of one bad trade every 12 seconds, you make all sorts of trades and then kind of like get smaller and smaller the smaller blocks are. Um, I like Solana. I like Solana a lot. And I like the ecosystem there. And we have solutions there. And I like Eugene and what they're building, Ellipsis Labs and, and Phoenix and a sh giant shout out to what they're building there. It's hard to get, it's a different architecture to begin with. So it's harder to get traction. So, you know, it's this 10x thing. Of like, it's, is it so much better that it will be able to get the liquidity and activity and everything around that? And not only that, the tooling, the ease of a bit like EVM is so broad right now that it's very easy to get something up and going. And <laughs> it isn't as, sorry, as easy to do on Solana right now with the way that they do account it, like, like it's just the learning curve around it. So that's one thing. Um, second thing, um, in Solana, I always this I always had this thing with G2 Labs. So G2 are building like an MEV solution on Solana. I love them. I think they're great. Okay, like Buffalo and and the rest of the team. Like, like they're they're good. They're super smart. They're super technical. And I hate their product. Okay, I hate it. I absolutely hate it because the entire value proposition of Solana is just like a real time trading, whatnot, etc. If you take all the important transaction and you stole them for one point two second or something like like. Any not important transaction goes through immediately, but anything important, let's put it on hold and try to run an auction for people to extract value from it. You're hurting the value proposition of Solana itself. So if that is the way that's being going to be, happen on Solana, I think it's hurting that. And I told that to the G2, and again, I think they're great. I think they're awesome. They could disagree with me. We could have a disagreement and I, I'm sure they're going to have like their own like argument in, in their favor. But I think it's hurting, and I told that to Tolly, uh, to Anatoly as well. Like, I think it's hurting the value proposition of Solana is like the thing that works in real time and allow for bandwidth, et cetera. Um, now take my, let's call it my solution, instant inclusion, which you could always almost think as virtualized trades, right? It's kind of like the block is going to come in 12 seconds, but instead of waiting until then, we're doing virtual, okay, this is going to be one, this is going to be two, this is going to be three. And then block is just like checkpoints to these pre-confirmations. So it doesn't really matter when they come in. It would happen in 12 seconds. Or, as long as I know that the order is already decided upon, then nothing else really matters. Um, these are very similar visions. Now the question is which would get traction and liquidity and ability and composability with everything else faster. I honestly wish Solana would do well here okay like I'm, I'm actually i think highly of the solana ecosystem and the founders and i think the tech is great and like i hope they're doing better i think what they're building is awesome would that be what i'm kind of like imagining you could think if my what i'm trying to envision here is like if this blows up and this becomes like compete with cfi and ten thousand transactions well at that point we need solana again right we can't like, what's the bandwidth? How many transactions could be pre-confirmed and at what rate and whatnot, et cetera. So the, even if I'm correct with instant inclusion, they could come and say, okay, Ethereum will take you here and Solana will take you here, right? Like, like you still need Solana if you want this to be like the, the New York Stock Exchange, like for real. So that is how I would like, it's not, I think me and Eugene agree on 99% of things. So like we have very similar views, I think, on this. Um, it just, 
I am trying to take the Ethereum ecosystem and push it in this direction, which is, I think, it better. it's better. And there's somewhat of like lack of self-awareness and like, like self-importance. Like, yes, I am Uri and I think everybody else in the room, including some real, I think I love Vitalik and I think he's great, but I think he's wrong on this. And I love Phil Diane and a lot of the people on the Flashbot team, et cetera. But I think they're wrong. Like, um, 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 the ghost step, um, um, blanking, blanking on his name. Um, uh, crap. <laughs> so if you hear from them that, uh, uh, there is no good and bad MEV. MEV is just like a force. Like I disagree. Front running is bad and arbitrage is good. And what else? so we have disagreement. And yes, I am like, I come and say, I think you're all wrong. And let me try to prove and show you that. The, and, you know, I might be proven wrong, but I'm going to try it one way or the other because I think it, it needs exploring and it needs proving. And say like, oh no, well, we have MEV and we didn't come up with any fancy way of solving it. So this is the direction that we're going. And it makes DeFi useless, but like, like, let's do it anyway, because we have a good understanding of the auction mechanism and how it works. And we're going to have an alternative L1, right? Okay, we have Sway. So users don't make transactions. They have meta transaction and they go to an auction where searchers try to create bundles and give them on an alternative L1 where block builders participate on multiple... <laughs> Say what? <laughs> Users make transaction. They come for like, like like the complexity around that and the stuff that aren't sold yet. Like, like I'm not sold on it. Okay, the, this it's I don't want to be offended. Like this gives me strong like lightning lightning network vibes. We're going to have this. We're going to have like um, um, watchtowers and something misbehaves. We're going to see it. It's gonna, it takes uh, simplicity has power. Now that doesn't mean that complex solutions don't work or are invaluable or they might turn out to be correct and I'm wrong, like it is a possibility or whatnot, et cetera. But understanding the complexities around it and what it would look like and how many new actors are we inserting? And we are relays, right? We, we talked about it. We, we don't have an incentive. My real incentive is to rug everybody and just, you know, grab 20 million and run into the sunset. And I'm not doing it because I have bigger vision and more money, which I want to do in different ways, but I am running a relay and you guys are all trusting me to do it. There is no coherent like incentive plan around it. And so I think I'll stop here. <laughs> yeah, that's such an interactive solution. It's it's super interesting. But I do have one more question, maybe as a, as a wrap up here is, what's the counter argument against instant inclusion? What what do the naysayers say? No, no, no. Here's why it's wrong. And, and how do you What's, what's the biggest? It yeah. won't work. Because the argument would be you can't have real first come, first serve. You don't, you don't have a notion of fairness and you don't know how to achieve it. And there will be front running. And what, the, what is fair? And does it actually work? And can, so let me, my PhD is in computer network. Okay, so even before being a crypto guy, I am a networking guy. So my thinking is, is that if validators make money that way and they are service providers, you could say validators, instead of, a, a, instead of a single proposer building a block and giving it the ability to order transaction extract value, all validators together create a new block as an aggregate of their perceived order. It's called Themis. It's a system that Ari Jules from Cornell and Chainlink kind of like um, 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 built. 
basically the proposer doesn't decide on the order. He received all the orders from all the other validators and say, oh, here's the order of their aggregate. It can't touch or change anything around it. And so the question is, can it that be fast enough? And the second, again, going to being a networking guy, if I send my transaction to all these validators directly, but I don't just do it, well, I'll broadcast it and hope for the best and then get front run. What if you start by sending it to the entity which is furthest from you and gradually send it closer to you around the world over the course of a hundred millisecond or so? That means that you're being protected by the speed of light. Okay, the one thing that Jump can't solve, and the biggest enemy of Jump, and they actually have a, like an article about it, is the speed of light. You can't beat it. So even if they sit next to me and I give them the transaction and they, within a picosecond, they identify it and send it to the other side of the world, if my transaction has an advantage of 70 milliseconds, they're not going to beat me because it's going to take them another 100 milliseconds to reach there. Like they can't make it faster. So if you send it to the other side of the world and gradually closer to you, I, I'm fairly certain we could prevent completely front running. And if you could, every so often front run, what would be the cost to achieving it and how much? Like, again, this is, this is my argument, it needs to be proven with real time. But going back to my, so, so the naysayers would say, what is even fair and you can't achieve it and we can manipulate it and you can prevent front running. So whether it's actually doable or not, which are super valid points. I'll go back to my previous argument. I want to prove that it pays more money. If it pays more money, we can solve all these, like, like it won't work. We're, how do we actually do it? How do we make sure it's decentralized? Like everything around it. And, you know, people say we can't do proof of stake either, right? I don't know if you've been long enough in crypto. The nothing at stake problem is a problem we cannot solve, right? We were all doing proof of work and then like proof of stake can be because you could be doing all sorts, but we solved that. Okay, like, like we could, if we have hard problems and we want to try to solve them, we have good technical abilities and iterate over them. You know, we had plasma, we had sharding, then we have rollups, like all these kind of stuff. But we only, it's only worth exploring if this could be done, if it actually pays validators more money. So that's my agenda, like, like the main goal and first objective. If we can prove that it pays more money, then it's worth doing all, everything else. If it doesn't pay more money, validators won't do it anyway. So what's the point of trying to solve all the other technical challenges. All right, I got one more one more question slash attempt to poke a hole in your your beliefs here. So your primary reason for wanting this kind of architecture is so that the DeFi experience is better because you're arguing that users are leaking value, you know, by making transactions in DeFi. But that sex to dex R will always be there, like no matter what into the future, because it's just different venues. So do you not expect our bots to, you know, run in there, make gas fees super high, and then ultimately you're left with the same problem that you started with and that users are paying exuberant amounts of money in gas fees instead of, you know, MEV? So that's an excellent question. What I, ex two things for that, or I do accept arbitrage, but I want them to participate and they will affect just like Binance affect Coinbase and vice versa. So we're all going to have this dynamics instead of CPI running ahead and then every so often, okay, just grab almost risk-free, like, like trade against stale prices. The risk is only, okay, who gets to cherry pick and take all the money from the, from the DeFi ecosystem? So yes, I, I want them to participate. If we build such a system, just like how block builders and others could take transactions or bundles, and if they revert, not include them, you could have exactly the same thing. 
arbitrator will try to send transaction and get included to try. And these, these would say like, I'm trying to make this trade. And if it doesn't happen here, revert. It has to happen in this block, in this state. Here it's calculated. And if it reverts, because he missed it, right? Three different arbitrators try to capture an opportunity. The first one get in, the others don't. Then we don't include that transaction. And then like we're, first of all, we're in a post-1559 uh, world. So like gas behaves differently. So there'll be usage and that would increase the base fee or whatnot, but to the level of the usage that people are willing to pay. But it won't drive gases the way that auction did that back in the day where all transactions got in, everything, you know, one transaction hit, 90 transactions revert behind it, just waste gas. Instead of it, it won't be in the incentive of the validator to include reverting transaction because they'll be getting basis points on volume. If the transaction reverts, it doesn't pay anything, so it's not really worth doing. So that would be my my come my two counters to to your to your poke, right? I do want arbitrage to participate, but to participate the way they are participating in CFI, and just like we're preventing waste of gas of reverting transaction right now with MEV boost and previously with MEBGEF and in the future potentially with Swave or whatever, you could do exactly the same thing here. The validators who are creating transaction decide on order and eventually don't include everything that reverts because it's wasteful and doesn't pay them. In this model, you're basically asking the validator to do more, right? It's got to run this uh, piece of software that will effectively be uh, making the instant inclusion impossible, pop, making that instant inclusion possible. Um, so I guess the question is like, ultimately, how much is that added requirement? And does that make it harder that, to that run? Is actually an ex that is an excellent question, actually. I touched upon it a bit with Justin Drake when I spoke at Laura Shin's podcast. I'm like, well, won't, this won't only large actors be able to do it and smaller ones won't, et cetera? And the short answer is no. The complicated part is let's simulate all the potential ways of transaction being included in all different orders and trying to extract more stuff. That is a very convoluted, they require a lot of like computation and heuristics and expertise to do it. A software which received transaction and put them first come first serve and broadcast, okay, this is one, this is two, this is three, this is four, to the proposer and the proposer aggregate that is super lightweight, super. That's very easy. You could run it on your Raspberry Pi, no problem. What about bandwidth and transactions? This is just like send, you send transactions. It's just sending these transactions. It does not add a lot to that. And maybe third, well, do you need to run something additional? Short answer is yes, something very lightweight, but yes. Do you have to? No, but it would pay you all the MEV value that we're trying. So like if you have 32 ETH to stake and run that, so 32 ETH, let's say, what, $50,000 or, or more? Yes, you can pay on your validator instead of running it on a $100 hardware, run it on a $150 hardware or something like that. And you have a proxy and you could accept transactions and you could actually, if this is a thing, we spoke about Solana. Solana have like jump building fire dancer. Okay, it's like, like, like a, a, a different client for Solana. And this is from the people who optimize every single piece of the hardware and software coming from high-frequency trading firms. This could be running on the networking card. You could optimize this to run on the, to be faster than your fastest computer if you build it and do it like on the firmware of the networking card. And we could do that. We have the expertise. This is just identical like building like what, what FireDancer are doing. Very doable, a, lar a large task, just like building a client is a large task, but we could do it 
if we find that it pays more value and we want to do it, then yes. Will it happen in a month? No. Will it happen in two years? Yes. You could like it's not that hard to make these, you know, get packets, drop them if they're already irrelevant, all these kind of checks, etc. You could do it on the hardware. You don't need special hardware, stronger computer, pay more. Well, that was an awesome conversation. Honestly, Yuri, like really appreciate it. This has been one of my favorite conversations I've had in a while. So I'm going to kick it over to you. Uh, where can people learn more about uh, Bloxroute and yourself? Really find us on Twitter, Uri and Bloxroute. Everything related to trading and DeFi and private transaction and everything, both in the current ecosystem that we're participating in, we're a large, eco- a large actor and both in these futuristic stuff that we're trying to achieve and improve the DeFi ecosystem. Oh, I love it. If nothing else, Uri is a great shit poster on Twitter. So an excellent follow. We'll, we'll be sure to put those, we'll put those links in the show notes. So they're easy for the, to the listeners to find, but thanks again, Uri. This was a fantastic conversation. This was fun. Thank you so much. 